Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich, and we're joined today by our special guest, Ben Marks. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you, Ben. Our theme this season is system and application architecture, so we're going to dive into all that. But first, we want to talk about a very, very mysterious new gig that you've got, Ben. We know that you used to be at uh, Bleacher Report, and that's how we know you from the conferences. But for the last several months, you've been working on something new, and I think you're ready to go public with it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we there's a few articles released on the Wall Street Journal and VentureBeat and about the company, and it's called Subspace. And basically, what it is is a a network for low latency, low jitter applications such as gaming or multimedia, these kind of things. So basically, you know, it's it's especially with like multiplayer games and competitive gaming, you need to have a low latency, like even five, 10 milliseconds will be a big difference to professional gamers, apparently. And so this, uh, so SoSpace's mission is to provide that sort of stable low latency internet for these kind of applications. Oh, I'm, I'm asking if you can just dive into that a little bit. Like when you say a network or like a new internet, like what does that mean? It's just, it's... Basically, a way for, um, I guess, one way to, to, talk, to describe it is a pathfinding for the, the fastest paths and the most reliable paths based on what your application needs might be. So, yes, essentially, it's a private network. Yeah, basically, it's so it's two, two co founders, Bayan Taufik and uh, William King is the CEO, uh, CTO, rather. And they have a lot of experience in the gaming and network and telecom area. And they realized that this was a problem that needed to be solved. And all of this was well before the coronavirus pandemic and these kind of things. So as it turns out that when we're stuck at home, we use the internet more and the internet becomes slightly less reliable and these kind of things. So it's sort of a, a problem that was needed, that was already needed to be solved. But with the, but the pandemic, then it's become ever more crucial. And that's sort of why we came out of stealth earlier. So it's really interesting. We're using Elixir for a lot of the a lot of the networking stuff, as you might imagine. And it's really nice and use case, and it's really interesting fit. And it's quite busy. We're quite busy with all of, all the things that are going on. So we have a question here from a friend of the show, Steve Bussey, who Steve's a great guy. So you know, Bleacher Report is known in the community for being a huge a proponent of Elixir and that uses a lot of Elixir. Can you talk a little bit about like the move from a company that is like a major like Elixir influencer to a brand new company? Is this changing, you know, your view of the language, doing open source? Do you have a lot of uh, Elixir going on at Subspace? Um, I don't think, I mean, Elixir was the Jenna who reached out to me initially about the job, did a very good job of summarizing what Subspace was in a very generalized way because it was still not to be talked about. And so she mentioned that it was using Elixir to solve these sort of low latency type problems. And so for me, it's an ideal fit for Elixir. And this is uh, what William and I talked about uh, in the interview as well. So we use a lot of Elixir. It's an ideal use case for the language. And, you know, there's lots of conference talks, I think, that are brewing that we would like to talk about um, once things get back to normal. It's just that things are, we want to, I think, have a the similar impact in the community that that Bleacher Report has had. Oh, really? So, so you think you'll still continue to be as involved in the community as you have been? Yeah, I think so. And hopefully we'll have other people speak as well, other people involved. We have lots of, like I said, you know, you know we, have a, we have a really small team. We're doing really interesting things. And so that there should be some good talks that come out of that. And so, yes, I think that that involvement will continue. 
Can you talk a little bit more about like the engineering staff? I mean, do you have any other names you might recognize working on the team over there? Or, you know, I guess also just since this is an architecture conversation, eventually, you know, what, how do you divide responsibilities working on a private network such as subspace? I would say that, I mean, I, I don't think that anyone else has spoken at conferences, but hopefully that will change. And that's, we should have some more people get out and tell some of the really cool stuff that they're working on. Um, as far as responsibilities go, it's more, since it's a startup, it, it really depends on what the day is really. You know, when my boss, Dan, interviewed me and back before I started, you know, we were talking about the network and talking about lower level stuff, you know, L2, L3 type stuff. And, and I was saying that I'm not familiar with any of that. And, you know, I can, you know, below like UDP, I don't really, have not really gone below that. And he's like, it's fine, you'll learn. I'm sorry, so, what is UDP? UDP, sorry. What like is that? TCP, IP, UDP? UDP. Pretend I'm five oh. and tell me what that is. <laughs> okay, sure. So, you know, TCP, IP. So, you know, you have to do a connection and do all the handshake and all this. And UDP are, are just packets that are just sent forward without any connection whatsoever. So they're just, you're just sending them along. Maybe that's not that's, a very good way. Yeah, that's the, the user datagram protocol yeah. is what that expands to datagram is that something i'm supposed to know eric likely uh, oh, like this the, the video that we're using right now is probably sending udp packets so it's it tcp has an like i send you something and you act it back that you got it this is just like blasting into the wild so it's, uh, okay so there's it's a no lot, delivery yeah. information okay yeah yeah, yeah so, so like there's a, a lot better latency or, or whatever because it's just like sending data like missing packets is fine for video generally so that's how, like why it exists well i'm sure that there yeah. will be no nothing like me listening who will benefit from that so no no i mean there's like but but yeah like like um like eric was saying you have tcp and then udp and like sing, streaming applications but tend to use udp because you can drop a packet here and there and it's not such a big deal but basically you know we had a conversation like that and he's, he's saying you know what do you know about this or that and i'm like not much and he's like it's fine you'll learn and so that's been a, a lot of it has been learning on the job and it's been really rewarding as well just because you know it's quite it's something that i've never done before and it's we have a supportive group so it's been a lot of fun something else to look up for udp before i forget the http3 is supposed to use udp i think it's through quick 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 yeah, i don't I know how quick, you yeah. yeah. <laughs> if anyone's curious to, to look at more into that so one of the things in season four that we want to do is also kind of deep dive into you. So how did you become a household name in the Elixir community? And like, what was that journey like? Well, I don't think that journey was has started yet, really. So I'll have to get back to me at a later point. I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, only, I think, you know, just uh, the, probably writing the book with uh, Bruce and Jose was, was pretty great. That was a really rewarding experience. I, you know, I, for whatever reason, I'd always wanted to write a book. And then it was when... I pitched the the book to Bruce because we met in Mexico City at an Erlang Factory Light a few years ago, and and then by the time like I had the first chapter around, he's like, "Hey, Jose, also pitched a similar book. Do you want to work together?" And I'm like, "Well, I guess so. If I have to, you know, no." But it was really great. I like I really enjoyed uh, the collaboration with with them and the friendships that came out of that. I think part of the reason actually that like I. I'm one of the people, I'm a fairly introverted person. So if I go to a place where I don't know anyone, I'll sort of stand in the corner. But if you give a talk, then people will come up and talk to you afterwards. That was sort of one of the reasons, well, like I enjoyed giving talks because that's how I met a lot of people, um, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. So I guess that's, and just I, I, just giving talks, I guess. I don't know. Do, uh, do you remember yeah. how we met, Ben? We met in Lone Star, right? Maybe, but I think the 
first time we met was actually at the 2018 ElixirConf speaker dinner. Oh, okay. That was yeah. in Seattle, right? Was it in Seattle? I think it was. Uh, yeah. Bellevue. yeah. Bellevue, right. With hot dogs. Yeah. So hot like, dogs. Yes. It was my first time speaking at a conference, and I went to the speaker dinner, and there was a table where it was like Jose Valim, you, Lance Halverson, Chris McCord was sitting there. Jim Freeze was sitting there and there was one seat empty at this table. And I just remember like in terror, in positive, absolute terror, taking that seat <laughs> and sitting with these, these like giants. And you were so friendly. You were so friendly. You and Lance both were like very, very friendly. I mean, everybody was friendly and welcoming. That's how everybody in the community is. But I remember specifically you and Lance were uh, extremely friendly and welcoming and it made me feel right at home. So thank well, that's you. great. I'm happy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar things for me. The first time I gave a talk or the first time I went to a conference or whatever, people were, were super nice. And Chris McCord, especially, you know, when I, I think the first one of the first talks I gave was at Lone Star. And, you know, after the talk, he's, he's like, you know, thanks for all the work that, you know, BR does to, you know, use Phoenix and make a good use case for the community. And so that that's really nice. I think it's a, like you said, it's a, it's a support, it's a supportive community. Yeah. And I don't think every programming community is like that. At ElixirConf last year, a gentleman came up to Jim Freeze and I, and he said that he came from some other programming where I don't want to say PHP, Perl, something like that. And he just said that the, the vibe was completely different and he felt so welcome and that he just was thanking Jim really for encouraging that. And yeah, that's a real thing in Elixir. So if you're thinking about picking it up, that's one good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting over the next uh, few years, especially because a lot of the talks have been around, you know, how we use Elixir or, you know, how we convinced our team to use Elixir. But I think that the next few years, hopefully we'll have more talks around, like, this is what we're doing with Elixir. Like, this is how, you know, like, what we wouldn't have been able to do with another language, or this is how we've used Elixir in a way that, that other people haven't used it, you know, get to sort of a next stage of Elixir use cases. Before we get too far away from this, I, I, I want to, uh, you mentioned you're introverted and the, a great way to get people to talk to you at a conference is to give a talk because then afterwards they come up. I also use that uh, cheat code. Yeah, I specifically remember that that was the speaker dinner was my first time talking as well. And Justice went to me and says, there's one seat left. I'm going sitting there. And I was like, no way am I going anywhere near that table. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely, if, if you're interested in becoming a, I don't know, if you're also an introvert and can stand on a table, like in front of people, it's a great way to, to meet people. They just come up to you afterwards. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's, I don't enjoy necessarily giving talks. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's not something that gives me a lot of, that's something that I look forward to, but immediately afterwards, it's fun because you get to talk to people, but it's not like, it's not something that comes easy, but it's also kind of, I think one of the interesting things about speaking as well is because I always assumed that whoever was speaking was, you know, an expert matter on everything related to the language or the concept that they were talking about or whatever. And, you know, it's really, I think anyone can give a talk if you just find something that you want to, that you're interested in and can come up with like a coherent message for 30 or which is probably pretty, I think 30 minutes is probably a good conference talk, then you should definitely submit a talk. And the, the more people that we have speaking about different things is the, the better that the, the community will be, I think. Okay. So season four is also about architecture and like system design. So what does architecture mean to you? I mean, generally speaking, I guess it's just, 
I think people maybe think of architecture as a static thing, but uh, software generally and architecture specifically, I feel it's like a dynamic thing, you know, even, or even a production, like people are like, oh, don't deploy to production, but we deploy to production all the time in most jobs. So it's, I think of it more of a, like a, architecture is more of like a biological structure than a static building. Even though like a building itself, obviously it's not static either. You have people, you know, coming in and out and carpets changing and pipes changing and all these kind of things. But yeah, I guess so. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, because one answer that we've received to this question was that architecture are the parts of your system that are hard to change. Uh, But you seem to be implying the opposite. These are the things that will change. Not necessarily. I I mean, they're not easy to change necessarily. Just like adding like a third like a third floor to a building is not an easy thing to change. But I think if you think that your architecture is finished or completed, then it's then you're looking at it in a, in a way that precludes you from from seeing different opportunities or different changes. And actually, that was at you know at BR, you know that was one of the interesting things was you know I'd been there for a long time, or or we you know especially in like the early days, we hired people and taught them Elixir on the job, and they would come up with a different pattern that I wouldn't have thought of doing. And and that was really cool because it was like, oh, this is someone who's come to this uh, language and they've applied other things to it and come up with a different solution. And so if we'd stuck with this sort of ideal of what our architecture would be, we might not have ch- changed it to include their their plans or their changes. Can you talk a little bit about the difference, if there is any, between architecture and design? I guess design is more of the abstract concept of what the architecture should be, and then architecture is what your system actually is, perhaps. Do you have any opinions on domain-driven design? I'm not really a big fan. I'm a, not a fan of using all of these sort of words to describe something in a more you know, highfalutin way. Then I'd, I'd rather speak plainly about something than using sort of these terminologies that, that mean one thing to one person and another to another. So I guess the way that I would... How do I feel about design domain driven with domain driven design? I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, but it, it it's sort of also instead of calling domain driven design, just saying what the piece of architecture does, it's a bit easier to express it. So, so maybe you could tell us what what domain driven design mean to you, because I think this is the other thing is not that not everybody agrees on the definition. So, so what is your definition of it? Well, my definition is probably wrong because I'm not well versed in like what the domain driven design is just sounds like it would be you know domain driven design is what is this you have something and you want to do something with that according to some sort of requirements you have so letting the requirements drive it yeah to some degree what would you correct me and tell me is the correct definition oh i wouldn't correct you yeah no i would not correct you yeah we, we we've been trying to ask because i think part of the question is like what you know, because there's obviously the book on domain-driven design that has like the canonical response, right? And so if you were the type of person that was very pedantic, you would reference that definition. But the real definition of a thing is what people believe it to be. And so I think that your opinion on what it is is actually much more heavily weighted, in my view, than like what, you know, this book says versus this book, because your opinion is actually how it plays out in real life, which I'm sure the, the authors and the credentialed experts would all, you know, I'm sure that they're pulling their hair out right now and, and throwing their phone across the room, but I couldn't care less. No, but I mean, but you make a good point. Like if it's, if it's, if there's a, how, how do you make sure that, you know, if you have the experts view or not, I mean, I don't want to speak uh, generally about experts, but experts in this sort of very slim case. And they had the, I mean, I feel like a lot of words in software are tossed around very 
very loosely. And so then, then it becomes much harder to understand precisely what the other person is saying if you don't if you don't have like you know if you're not steeped in like domain driven design, but then you you know people toss around the word you know without that expertise, then it becomes much harder to reason about what that is. Right. I, I will say that my understanding of domain driven design is pretty close to what you described, which is that the the architecture is derived from the business logic of the domain which I think is almost a tautology in a sense, because how do you generate an architecture that is not derived from the requirements of the domain? Like in like Elixir, we have contexts, and I think contexts lend themselves to domain-driven design in a way that like an MVC architecture or like object-oriented design doesn't necessarily lend itself to that, so. Yeah, I mean, it's just basically the scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis and you want to, prove it and if it doesn't work then you adjust it and then there's your domain and then it's like data driven it's just the scientific method isn't it to some degree mm, mm. yeah I, I like that a lot yeah i don't know and this is why i don't get tied up with these fancy terms yeah so before we get into some specifics we have one more kind of general question about like how how you might lay out an application so like one of the big concerns typically with most web apps or just applications is like authentication and authorization. So where do you typically place that? Like, is that at the, at a con- controller or is that at like a context or where might you stick that system? Well, I guess it depends on the scale of your company. Uh, if it's, you know, if you can put everything into one application, all the better. Um, but if you have, you know, if you have a distributed system, then I imagine that that would live in its own system, uh, in its own service rather, and then you would communicate somehow with the other systems. I don't know. I mean, at the, we didn't really use context as such at Bleacher Report because our all of our Phoenix apps were were pretty old before context were a thing, and we had. But I mentioned that I would probably this is probably a bit old fashioned at this point, but put it in the controller, and I can't even remember what the the function would, would be that we would do or that we would use, but let's just have some check before controller action, I suppose, for the authorization, for the authentication, perhaps somewhere else. Can you talk a little bit about your time at Bleacher Report? Obviously, you know, whatever you're able to talk about, you know, specifically, we want to talk about, you know, lessons that you learned. I'd also really like to hear about like a narrative history of, you know, when you started there, maybe what did the architecture look like and what were some of the bigger decisions and turning points? I mean, when I when I started, it was in. I mean, we sort of talked about this in talks and and such. But more specifically, I guess, you know, it was an interesting time. It was a transition from sort of one period of BR to another, and now I think BR is in another doing uh, another period with a new group of people as well. When I started, it was more about aggregating information from different spots and and pulling that into one place. Um, and then as the user base grew, that be, that grew, that became harder to do. So part of the, I guess, the first couple of years of my time at BR was around moving off of Ruby and onto Elixir. And as part of that was rewriting the structure of the applications and how they communicate and sort of also, um, as we brought on new people, they were also, you know, given uh, responsibility to take control of this application or these services or whatever and, and do similar type things. And then now what BR is doing is, you know, if you look at the app, you can see that there's the whole social aspect and there's about connecting with people and about sharing 
the experience with that. So, you know, you maybe have someone else to talk about what they're doing now. But I think that the the big transition as far as architecture was pulling things into, I guess, into their own domains in the sense that before it was sort of a, a monolith-ish type of thing with a couple of services. And then over the next couple of years, it was how do we break these into sort of single responsibility services, not microservices, but services that can stand on their own um, and to be more resilient. So would you say they were microliths? They were servers that could services that could stand on their own. I don't know. No, I know. It's like I saw some. What was it? Microlith is that the new thing or no? Macro service. That's the new. Yeah, thing, right? ma- oh, ma- I've seen service. I've yeah. seen Macrolith and yeah, <laughs> just. Yeah, but this is this goes back to what I'm talking about about speaking plainly. Like, who cares? Like, we'll just call it what it is. It's just a service that does something. Like, I mean, and that was. Not, I'm just becoming a curmudgeon, I guess, but. Become a curmudgeon. I'm a curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah. Join the curmudgeon club. <laughs> I'm over here like if you're trying to build a microservice architecture and you don't have like a serious use case for it, stop. Just build a monolith. Just put it all in one repo. It will make your life so much easier. I don't know why everybody's trying to like serviceify everything. I saw something recently that was like, stop building. Like you probably don't need a microservice because Amazon went for seven years or like up to 2001 or something doing like a billion dollars a quarter in a monolithic application like you don't like if they can do that you can do that <laughs> isn't facebook still just a big php app <laughs> like isn't it just, i'm sorry but go on ben what were you gonna say you're, you're the guest here no no no. i was gonna say i think probably one of the re- reasons that we come up with these new names is because people want to you know have like a catchy thing for them to be associated with. And now I came up with this term or I can, I mean, it's in any industry or like anything to have a sort of the zeitgeist. Well, you know, now we're doing microservices. Now we're doing macro services. Now we're doing monoliths, et cetera. But speaking from experience, I mean, you know, BR had a pretty large scale and subspace also has quite a, a high scale. And I've worked at companies with smaller scales and the, the cognitive over, overhead of bringing on another service is actually quite a lot is, is pretty high. And also the fact that you have to deal with the communications between services, the, you know, you're probably using AWS or GCP or something. And all of, there are some, we've had some interesting at different companies had some interesting experiences when things react in different ways or when requests get lost somewhere. And so if you can keep everything into a single service then all the better, I think might not be as exciting, you know, but you don't want exciting when you want to have something run stably, I guess. So I guess one thing I'm curious, I think Bleacher Report used Kafka I, I, based on what I've heard filter out. Like, what was your experience using that? Because mine currently is just trying to set one up for production and I believe it's impossible. <laughs> it's uh, Kafka-esque. I, yeah. I, don't know, I also don't know why they called it Kafka because, you know, Franz Kafka is all about sort of labyrinth and horrible sort of... Be- mindless bureaucracy and and people metamorphosizing into cockroaches i think engineers are absolutely the worst possible people at naming things (laughs) i just found a library i'm going to just rant about this for two seconds which is aol has a library called moloch okay moloch is the canaanite god of child sacrifice like what could possibly compel you to do something so idiotic as naming a major part of your like library moloch like it's it's like if i named it like hitler or like mao or you know like 
what are you are you anyway it's just so bad yeah kafka like absurdity and confusion is that what you want your library associated with no cassandra oh cassandra cassandra is uh she was a trojan prophetess who tried to warn about the greeks attacking and everyone ignored her so i don't know what that's about cassandra but interesting choices well yeah we kafka's pretty heavily used. But again, you'd have to maybe have someone who's at BR now speak about what they're doing with it. But all things equal, I think that I would try to, unless you have a good use case for it then, or have the ops team or outsource or you know have a third party company maintain it for you, then I, I would not use Kafka. Just because, again, it's more overhead and what do you, you know, what are your use case? What do you really need it for? Why are you using Kafka? I mean, maybe can you speak about, you know, your experience or why you would use Kafka or why you're using Kafka? So uh, this or, was for a, a client who wanted to use it. I think they didn't have a particular use case at the time. It was just like they needed a queuing system to talk to because they have like some Python services and, and Elixir services and they just picked Kafka. And then I think... We're asking like, oh, why Kafka? Why not RabbitMQ or or this other thing? And then it just stuck with Kafka. And and apparent so apparently just to find it, to give the answer that the person who named it named it because it is a system optimized for writing, and he liked Kafka's work. <laughs> that, so he fine. had bad taste. <laughs> no, I'm Actually, Kafka's great. I'm I'm just I'm messing around. Yeah. Actually, the the Erlang library for Kafka is called Broad. And it's Max Broad was one of uh, Kafka's friends. And I believe he was supposed to burn all of Kafka's writings after Kafka died, but instead he published them. So, Wow. There's also, I think, a secondary library in Elixir called, it's like Elise or Eliza or something. That's like his wife or something like that. (laughs) Let's talk, let's circle all the way back (sighs) to the beginning. Um, Talk a little bit more about the work you're doing at your new role, Um, specifically about like what you've been learning. You know, you said you've been learning a lot and like specifically like jump into it like tell us you know and feel free to dive deep because our audience is mostly technical and they love the nitty-gritty i mean there's not so much that i can say openly quite yet because we need to figure out exactly what we're going to talk about but i mean i suppose at some point you know once hopefully conferences begin again we have some interesting stuff to talk about and but you know when i mentioned like l2 and l3 so you know l4 to l7 is sort of the application layer with the tcp ip udp all this stuff l3 is the routing layer so routing between like uh switches or peers or these kind of things and then l2 is like the the data link layer and then l1 is actual physical layer where you plug stuff into routers or switches or whatever um so a lot of it's been me just hey here's this here's this concept like you know what is a what is a peer or what is a what does that mean in, in networking? And, you know, I had no idea what that meant. So a lot of it was actually learning about, you know, what BGP is, what the border gateway protocol is, how packets get routed around the internet. I mean, if we're, you know, we're working on this low latency network, then I probably need to know how that happens. And we have like a network engineering team that that's full-time working on the network itself. And so we've been partnering with them to, because they'll ultimately be using stuff we write and, and to use it to make the network be that much more efficient. And so it's been a lot of fun, but I feel like in some ways, you know, like the first day of university or something where it's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So can you show me this? And then I'm you know, asking all these questions. And so a lot of it's just been about learning how packets get sent around the internet from one place to another. And what happens if these packets get lost? What happens, you know, why is the internet efficient at all? 
or why is it inefficient at all? And a lot of these things have been around for a long time. So I asked, I was, you know, before the interview, I was like, you know, what should I, what should I study for? How should I prepare? And I was sent a bunch of articles about different things and about how, and one of the interesting things that caught out to me was that different like nation states can use, can take these packets, impersonate them and redirect traffic to different parts of the world so that they can basically see, you know, introspect the traffic that's coming to them and do stuff with it. And, and then also some, and even some of the, the funnier stuff, I mean, funnier, you know, quote unquote, but I think in Pakistan, they accidentally turned off part of the internet because of YouTube or something. And so then half of you know, the internet in Pakistan was unreachable for a while. And I'll, I'll send you the link afterwards so I can verify what I'm saying. But m- mostly it's been around how does the internet actually work at a lower level. I was actually, you mentioned uh, nation states redirecting traffic. I was going to ask you a slightly joke question if so that that's the border gateway protocol is what what does that the say i was going to ask if if your service could alter that because i think it's fairly insecure and you can just like send packets um yeah so yeah the cloud flare and maybe like the cncf like a cloud native cloud foundation thing i think it's rpki is what it's called yeah resource public key infrastructure is a new thing to help make the internet more secure or make BGP uh, routing more secure. And the other thing I wanted to mention was that you you had said layer like one through seven. That's for people who may not know and, and want to look up more. That's the OSI model of uh, networking. There's And we'll have a link to the Wikipedia. How have you all been doing with that? Do you, are you, um, do you have quarantine in your, where you are? Shelter at home or whatever they call it. Yeah, Maryland has got uh, some of the strictest policies, but some of the most lax enforcement, which is a really nice, I mean, I disagree with the strict policy, but I agree with the lax enforcement. <laughs> so, but it's a nice gray area where, you know, plenty plenty of uh, room for institutional malfeasance. I'm c- curious, because, uh, you know, one thing that kind of came up before the call was, you know, working from home and, and, and your process of going to a new role right in the middle of this whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we moved to LA, uh, some places in LA, we moved down from the Bay Area. It was, you know, we had had a baby last year and Howie and I were talking about you know, next steps, you know, what would we do? And it's like, well, we're not going to, we need to find a new place because, you know, our current place wasn't good size for for a baby but you know no new job and not going to do anything crazy and so then you know we, we end up moving and got a new job with a baby all at the beginning of the year and so it was the transition was actually was pretty pleasant i mean the subspace was super helpful in getting us down here and making sure we were well taken care of but then you know we, we worked we have a very light process and a very analog process actually uh, for you know tracking work and so then suddenly we had to go remote, but we were pretty good about taking that very lightweight process and turning it into a digital process and keeping, we basically keep all of our information as close to the code as possible. So like in, in a, like a pull request or something, which, and that's one of the nice things as well about this space is that you have a lot of ownership of your system that you're responsible for. It's literally called like responsible engineer. So you get to, there's a lot of latitude and also a lot of expectations. Uh, expectations that come with saying, well, this is what my system needs, or this is what we need to do, or these how this is how these two systems should integrate. And it's really a bottom-up driven organization. 
I mean, we, we're a very small company, so there's not that many layers between like C- CTO and, and anyone else. It's really nice to have that sort of flexibility and responsibility to to drive things forward. I'm curious, uh, how do you, it's come up in recent conversations. Sophie wrote a piece, Sophie DiBenedetto, Sophie DiBenedetto wrote a piece on how now all developers are project managers because once you're forced to be home, you have to manage your own priorities and everything. I'm curious, like, do you have rhythms or practices that have helped you communicate and uh, stay organized? Yeah, I mean, we have we have like a daily check-ins, which are pretty useful. Because that's really the time that we touch base with everyone to make sure that we're all on the same page. And then people who are sort of working on the same system will typically be on, you know, they sort of decide how they want to communicate with each other, whether that's like on a video conference or whether that's just checking in on yeah, Slack or whatever. You know, one of the also one of the things as well. You guys, know, there's a ton of stuff. It's a startup, and we have you know pretty ambitious plans. So there's tons of things that we need to get done. But one of the things that like uh, the, um, our, our boss said was, you know, make sure that you take time. You know, don't turn this into like work isn't the only. Th- you know, make sure that you have a day like you would before. You know, take a take a break for lunch. Stop in the evening. Take you know, spend some time. You know, because otherwise your days are going to bleed into each other. And I think that's something that was that was super helpful. I mean, also really nice for him to just come out and say, like he says, it's probably once a week, maybe just saying that, like, you know, make sure that you have the time because right now, you know, it does feel like sort of an endless day. I mean, I think today's Tuesday, but you could say it's Thursday or Wednesday or any other day. And I'd probably be like, that sounds right. I definitely woke up this morning and thought that it was Saturday, I think. <laughs> it's like, oh, good. We have a, it's a, it's a free day. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a baby, so there's never a free day, right? He's at the age right now where... You can just kind of set him on the couch next to you and he's just like going to sit there and just like sleep probably. So we probably have like another month of that maybe. We never had that. He was always active. He always wanted to be held and entertained. But so but back to the work stuff. Like that's, It's also actually been really nice because, you know, since always she's taking care of, of the baby now that I'm at home, you know, every so often I'll get up and take him for five, 10 minutes. You know, I can help with lunch. I can help with breakfast, help with dinner. So that's, that's actually been one of the nice things about working from home and even, you know, just, just get to, to see them more often. Mm. I love the baby talk. Uh, <laughs> I wish people talked about their kids more often. It's really in the industry. You know, it's really a, <laughs> a light. So talk a little bit, you know, before we close out, we're going to give you, we'd love for you to talk about your book. Why should we read it and who should read it? You know, are you writing another one? Would you write another one? Um, and also just feel free to use this time for any shameless self-promotion, any plugs, any, you know, where can people find you, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, let's see. First, uh, another book, maybe someday. Things are busy right now with work and uh, the family. But yeah, I have some some ideas, hopefully. I, I enjoyed writing the book. It's something that, you know, like I mentioned before, for whatever reason, like I've always wanted to write a book and it was writing a book is not necessarily an enjoyable process, like giving a talk, right? The preparation for it and the, the duration of it is for me, not pleasant, but the, uh, the finishing, finishing it is, is nice. Probably most people who have written a book would probably agree with that, but we'll see how things go over the next year or so. And then adopting elixir, who should read it? I think a lot of the things that we wrote in the book still hold true about how to organize your team, how to build a team, not even from an Elixir standpoint, but from a general standpoint, how to build a team with a new language, how to how to convince or how to su- support your argument that you, know, that you should try about this new language because it is incredibly expensive to try out a new language. And I think, you know, 
it's, it'll be curious to see how many more people start using Elixir because we, you know, you see, uh, you know, in Elixir Weekly or Elixir Radar, these kind of things, these kind of newsletters, uh, these different companies trying out Elixir. I'd be curious to see more case studies from, and I guess it's sort of a catch-22 because a lot of companies don't let, you know, large companies won't, won't say that they're using a language or experimenting with a language until they already are using it. But I would, I mean, I still think that the, the, the sort of the, what we've put forth about, you know, why you would want to use a language, why you would want to use Elixir or why it would make sense for you to use it. Those still hold true. Uh, I think also with, you know, more generally or more specifically, I suppose, with Phoenix Live View and Phoenix 1.5, I think those make compelling arguments to use Elixir and Phoenix because it's super simple to get up and up and running with, with Phoenix. And Chris and the Phoenix team have done a really great job of lowering the bar and adding in many more sort of developer-friendly features around you know, migrations and setting up a database and these kind of things. So I think even for, for smaller companies or for even for, for programmers who are just getting, getting started, like Elixir and Phoenix, I would find, I find it hard to, I would find it hard to pick another language, I guess. And do you want to make any final requests or plugs for the audience where they can find you, uh, where they can find your new gig, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. I mean, we are looking for maybe one or two Elixir, senior Elixir people in LA. So if you, if that sounds interesting to you, I'll send, send you the, share the, the article about the company in the show notes so you can get a little bit more about it. And if that's something to interest you, you can reach out to me on Twitter. It's, uh, my handle is BGMARX or send me a message at ben at subspace.com. And we will try to see if that will work out. Um, so yeah, that's probably about it. I don't really have too many things to. Awesome. Elixir Wizards. This has been an episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you, Ben Marks and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I'm Justice Eepin. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We are always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, so add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Eepin and Eric Ostrich for Eric <laughs> and join us again next time for more Elixir Wizards on system and application architecture.